Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 Friday the 13th, for a matter of fact. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, but it's Friday the 13th, and it's uh, 2013, and it's December. We're almost halfway through December. That means we're almost halfway through a month that is the last month in the year, and tick, tick, tick. The clock ticks on, time moves on. You're either working for liberty or sliding into less, uh, sliding into less liberty. You don't really have a choice in the matter. The way society's acting today and moving today, you're either creating your own liberty and freedom or you're not. And if you're not, then it's probably being encroached on. So I challenge you to create as much liberty for yourself as you can in the remainder of 2013 and use it as time to plan for really breaking out into your own liberty and freedom in uh, 2014. And we're going to be talking about that today from the permaculture viewpoint because I'm going to have Jeff Lawton on the air with us today for about 24 minutes. I'll talk to you more about why it's only 24 minutes in a moment, but uh, Jeff's going to be on. Then I'm going to talk about some of the things Jeff's doing and some of the things Jeff mentions in my insights on them uh, because it just so happens some of the things he talked about in our time are things that uh, I have a lot of knowledge about due to reading certain books and uh, just having a lot of interest in these areas. And I, I didn't even know one of them was something that, that fit that category until this morning uh, when his latest video actually came out. Before I get into my oh, uh, I put out a post today saying there would be no listener call-in show today. Um, just real quick on that, I pretty much did everything I had to say in the post, but... Guys, when you call in for the listener call shows, you have got to ask your question or make your point in the first, like, 30 seconds. You, you really do. Or it's, it's weird because you're talking to a machine, not a human, and a person can't say, um, what exactly do you mean? Or let you know that you've, like, sidebarred off for, like, a minute and a half. I didn't have enough calls to work with today, so I'm circum, uh, preempting the uh, listener call show today. Um, but I think we'll have enough coming over the weekend, and uh, we'll get a show done either Monday or Tuesday, and we'll also do a call-in show on Friday next week uh, as we head into, uh, you know, real close to Christmas time at that point. Uh, so I'll try to get the quantity out for you, but keep the quality up. I just couldn't work with what I had this week. Before I get into uh, my interview with Jeff and some follow-up stuff on that, let me uh, go ahead and take care of our sponsors uh, of the day today. Uh, our sponsors of the day number one today is uh, sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the things you could ever want to live that tactical lifestyle. Check them out today at sawtac.com. And I do mean everything like the highly manly, awesome titanium spork, Magpaul magazines, uh, Maxpedition bags, everything else in between. You'll find it at sawtoothtactical.com. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that is what it is, says what it is, and does what it says. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready made, ready to go. Point click buy on their website. Shipped to you with great service, really, really quickly, and with great pricing to boot. ReadyMadeResources.com. Point click buy and the resources arrive just like magic on your front door. Uh, both Sawtack and ReadyMade guys are long term uh, sponsors. Been with us forever, it seems like, you know, more than four years. Um, not the first sponsors, but probably the second or third. And then Sawtooth was probably the fourth or fifth sponsor we ever had. I mean, 
These guys have been loyal to us. So think about that when you're making your decisions about where to get stuff. Uh, all of our sponsors really have been with us a long time. Uh, January will be our fifth year anniversary for Safecastle, just to kind of put it in perspective. That's a long time for a podcast, let alone a long time for a sponsor of a podcast. Anyway, I, I got a little bit short on the uh, sponsors today because I wanted to read something to you that I wrote this morning. Um, I've been kind of highlighting some of our sponsors um, or our, our MSB supporters, and both of those guys are listed in today, so that's why I kind of pulled it a little short. But um, I've been just highlighting, like, well, what do you get as an MSB member? What are the discounts available? Today I highlighted tactical and medical. And I won't go into the specifics of each one because I don't want to take, you know, 20 minutes to do an intro. I'm just going to name the companies that do something for you in the MSB and say just a little bit about what they do. Western Botanicals, they do a, a, a discount membership for you guys, 50 bucks uh, is what it would cost to buy it if you didn't have it, 25% off everything. You know, everything herbal. Doom and Bloom Medical Supplies, 10% off. Um, Dark Angel Medical does 10% off. Bulk Ammo does $10 off any order of more than $200. Pallet and Press, 15% off. Survival Gear Bags, 10% off. Camping Survival, awesome website, very well known, 5% off. Sawtooth Tactical, 10% off on all purchases. 180 TAC does 10% discount on all purchases of their stuff. It used to be one item. Now they have everything in their store at 10% off. Next level training, 20.5%. Uh, they basically give you guys the same price as if you were a law enforcement customer. Uh, Safe Castle Royal does their discount membership for free. That would be 49 bucks to buy. Um, MERSradio.com does 5% off. MERS radios are awesome. Old Grouch Military Surplus, 10% off. Black Dragon Tactical, free shipping on all orders. And TN Tactical Supply does 10% off all orders. Those are just the tactical and medical. That's 15. Uh, I bring that up because I'm running a sale on the member support brigade uh, until Sunday night, midnight. Uh, get your first year for 30 bucks. You can pay by uh, check or money order. You can see how to do that on the, uh, the, the post about the sale. Discount code is DEC2013, DEC2013. Um, I do do a discount for military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, that type of thing I talk about all the time. But this sale's a better deal if you're going to join for a year. So uh, I'm just going to leave it at that today. Our history segment for today is 1266. I talked yesterday about how um, Prince Edward uh, had uh, escaped bondage and killed Simon de Montfort and uh, vanquished the barons in the Second Barons' War. Well... King Henry uh, decides that, you know, we need the barons. Uh, the, you know, thieves need each other and have to make amends sometimes. And since we've already killed De Montfort and cut his body into large pieces, as an example, uh, the barons know their place now. So we'll let them return to their job, which is being basically government in their individual provinces and collecting taxes for the king. So did uh, the king just say, okay, take your stuff back and go on about your business, Barons? No, what he said is, um, yeah, uh, see, we seized all your property and stuff, yeah, and uh, you can have your little fiefdoms back underneath my kingdom, yeah, but you're going to have to buy them. So uh, the king basically sells back to the Barons their own property, because uh, again, England is just strapped for cash at this time, so... You know, when a government's strapped for cash, they'll just do about anything to raise it, including steal from you and sell you your own property back. more things change, the more they stay the same. 
Those that think that's political, man, all I'm doing is looking at history and telling you what happened and telling you it will happen again and again throughout our history segments, including when we get up to modern times. Anyway, with that wrapped up, I want to get into the uh, interview with Jeff, and I'll tell you at the end of that interview, I'll be coming back to expound on some things. I want to talk to you just a little bit to let you know what went into making this interview work. Um, for some reason, we've had a little bit of trouble with Skype lately. I even had an interview I had to cancel. I think it had something to do with the rain, or not the rain, the ice, and some damaged infrastructure around here. And maybe maybe the cable company's pushing more people together than they normally would as a redundancy or something while they fix some damage. I'm not sure. But then I did an interview the next day, and it was fine. There was no echoes or reverb or anything like that. When we talk to Jeff, and he's in either Jordan or Australia, there's always a little bit of lag across Skype, and there's always some problems. But yesterday was crazy. There were times where there was 10 to 15 seconds of dead silence. We thought we lost him. We just waited it out. And all of a sudden, he'd come back on. And funny enough, there were no words missing. It was like if I was saying, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog like that. Um, there were also times where he, like, I'm going to tell you one just so you can realize how, how well this came out, man, because it's not bad at all. Uh, he's talk, there's be a point here where he's talking about the quality of this compost, and he's going to go, wow, like that, you know, like, wow, like that's, that's really impressive, you know. Well, in the original one, it was like, it sounded just like this. Wow. And I pulled it out, and I condensed it, and I dropped it back in, and I played it through. And there's a little bit of reverb in it, but it sounds pretty good. All in all, the segment was about 37 minutes long. And by the time I was done taking out all the pauses and the breaks and points where we sounded like we were talking over each other, which we weren't, there was just such a, a delay that... Um, we, we were talking at times where we didn't know the other one was talking or what have you. And I cleaned all that up. We were down to 24 minutes. And it's, with the exception of a couple things, it's pretty dad gun good. Listen for something else. There'll be times where you'll hear Jeff talking, and, and this is what you'll hear. Uh, something like, well, the quick brown fox jumped over to the lazy dog. Like, it'll speed up just for a second. It's almost like... It, the, the, the compression wound up and it almost like it ran downhill for a second. And I could only do so much with those. There's a few of those in there. Uh, but I spent an hour and a half editing this because I, I think that when somebody like Jeff takes his time to come on the air, we'll do whatever we can to make it work. And he was a champ. And there was a lot of times where he was a little stammering that I pulled out too. And the reason was we were also getting echo. Now, if you've ever been on a phone call, where you're talking and you hear yourself about two seconds behind talking back to yourself, it's maddening. He was like a champ, man. He fought right through it. And uh, this is what we ended up with. And I think it's outstanding. And, uh, you know, you got the best of the best condensed down into about 24 minutes here. And we lost nothing. Just simply took out all of these weird things. I just want to explain to you guys, you know, one, uh, what, went, what we did had to do to make it work. And, and two... Um, you know, why it's shorter than normal. There's a ton of things I wanted to talk to him about, and I just wasn't willing to put him through all these technical things any further at the point that we got toward the end of this. Um, I also want to say how great it is that Jeff will take time to come on here. I want you guys to know what he did to be on here. So he had only been home from Jordan for about two days. It's a major jet lag episode. He's trying to get Zatuna running again under his tutelage. He's teaching classes, and he gets up, at like 5.30 in the morning, 
um, you know, to be with me um, at three o'clock in the afternoon my time, so that we could get this interview done. So Jeff's an awesome guy. He really cares about what he's doing, and uh, I think he can help a lot more people uh, find their way toward liberty. So with that, uh, here's our interview with Jeff Lawton, and at the end, I'll be back to tell you some things that I want to add uh, to what we discussed. All right, folks, and with that, I want to say, hey, Jeff, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. So, hey, we were just chatting a little off offline about a lot of the things that you got, you've got going on, but I think that maybe we, we could start out with, uh, of course, last year, uh, really earlier this year, you ran an online PDC, first of its kind ever, and uh, it was it was an amazing success, and I think that when you put it together, you knew it was going to be a success, but I think it kind of even blew you away what the results were. Can, can you kind of tell people what, you know, what the results of that, that online PDC were like for you? Well, it was, uh, it was probably the biggest surprise in my teaching career in permaculture. Um, I, I had no idea how an online was going to work, and I, I just did it my way, my style. And it, it, it's not an, a permanently run online course. It, it's a, an event. I run it as an event, so people felt like they were part of an event with a, a chapter released every week over 12 weeks and an ongoing forum and Q&A questions answered direct to camera, live time, um, filming. The, uh, the, the, the extra material we could pile in um, I thought would be quite phenomenal, and it was. We could add all kinds of graphics. We could add all sorts of information. We could add extra filming clips, probably five to ten times more information than you can normally put into a 72-hour PDC and, and people had the ability to replay and replay. Um, so we had really nice visuals. We had great information connections. And I was still unsure. I could see the amount of interest and the amount of questions coming in. It started to get obvious as we got halfway through that the amount of questions I was servicing was way more than would normally be possible in a face-to-face PDC. And we ended up with 13... 1,481 questions and comments, which is not possible to even listen to in a, in a, in a 72-hour PDC. And in there were a lot of inquiries and a lot of people's doubts and what people really wanted to know. I was able to service those inquiries, those doubts, the information people were after to feel more secure, and that felt great. It really felt great to service the, the community of learners that I was engaging with. And it, and it actually started to feel as intimate or intimate in another way than, an online, uh, than, a, than a face-to-face. Um, but, of course, the only real test that you've achieved um, a real educational process as a teacher and you've got a, a worthwhile w- result is that uh, your students become active and they, they demonstrate their capability to be able to design. So at the end of a, a permaculture design certificate course, it's always quite nerve-wracking for me to see whether the design exercises come in with reasonable competency, showing the potential of, of good understanding. Look professional, not fantasy, but real. So we set out a design exercise. We put quite a serious em- emphasis on it with the drama that you can put into video and, and screen-type information. And as soon as they started to come in, the designs really started to indicate we'd done something quite different. Uh, the design quality, the design exercise quality that came in um, was 
something I've never seen. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I, I would say 10% of the designs that came in were probably way better than what I could do at, at, in presentation style anyway. But the, you, the competency is, is uh, amazing. And the interactivity between the students, they helped each other. They helped each other with uh, online processes. They helped. They communicated with each other about information. They're already online and they're on an online community forum. So they, there was this social media permaculture communication event going on uh, as part of it. And then the next thing that came in was um, I've got a job, I've got a consultancy, I'm being asked to teach, I'm being asked to you know, run a workshop, I'm being asked to talk to my local community, I've been asked to write in the newspaper. All these activity events started to come in um, where people were obviously engaging, feeling confident, and they were sti- they're still talking to each other. So they've got some of the most active Facebook pages interacting with each other still right now. Um, I couldn't be more pleased. The testimonials came in at a ridiculous quality <laughs> of, of hundreds and hundreds of beautiful testimonials. I mean, so I feel very confident that I've actually come up with a, a style of education which is what a lot of educators are doing today i think i think universities are being questioned that they can actually get much of a result with these massive multi-billion dollar infrastructures when we can do this incredible thing online and i think that's something happening worldwide and uh, and it was great to be able to engage in that in permaculture uh, demonstration and uh, of education processes uh, we've learned a lot and we're really, really revving it up now. Now we know we've opened a door that we can really expand, and um, we're, we're filming what people want to know. We're explaining things in more detail. Um, we're, we're giving it every every way we can now, so we're really getting extra material for whenever we run this again. So there was two things that I had my personal concerns about whether or not you could pull off. And one I was pretty confident in, and that was the ability to have the instructor interaction because I knew you could actually do more. Having run training myself, you know, we do a Q&A session after a day of presentation, and after about an hour or maybe an hour and a half, you're like, okay, guys, we're going to have dinner, and I'm going to go take a break, and you just can't do anymore at that point, where when you've got it spaced out, you can kind of sit back at your leisure, pick and choose, and fill them in throughout a day, you could do a lot more. So I was, I was really happy to see you do that. My, my actual concern was when you go to a PDC, there's, you're surrounded by you know a small one, maybe 10 students, a large one, maybe 30 to 50 students of people just like yourself that are there for the same reason. And everybody kind of leans on each other a little bit. You know, I, I can design in my head, but you know, I shouldn't even be allowed to touch a pencil. Uh, my wife tells me all the time not to ever fill out anything except a signature. Um, and, and you, you know, you, you can have this kind of reliance on each other to help each other through your weak spots. But the fact that students were able to reach out through forums and things like that and support each other really, I think, was a big part of what made it the success that it was. Yeah, there was actually an IT support network within the students, and they set up uh, their own forum thread where you could go in and ask questions. So people that had very little ability online to run any kind of programs were getting were getting coached exactly how to go about it. So it was it was great to see because uh, part of, most of that I was just sitting back and looking at it from a distance. This is really it's really quite interesting to see how people were confident that way. 
I, I know that people re-ran the videos and uh, lectures up to five or six times, so they re-ran and re-ran to make sure that they could understand everything as much as possible. And then when they weren't sure, they were able to ask questions without feeling self-confident, uh, you know, um, that they were asking a dumb question in front of other people because they're sitting on their own somewhere uh, on a computer. They didn't feel self-conscious about asking questions, where I think a lot of people in a face-to-face -face course kind of feel like, oh, I don't really want to ask a question because maybe I should know this or I'm going to look stupid. Now, people weren't worried about that. They just asked questions. They, there was uh, multiple questions that we repeatedly answered. Now, while you were doing all this, I think you gathered a lot of intelligence on what people really wanted you to know. And then you kind of kicked on your traveling shoes again, and you, you were over here in the States. You were back in Jordan again. You've put together a tremendous amount of video that you're going to be releasing in, in coming weeks, correct? Yeah, yeah. We've, it really uh, focused our vision on what people really want to know. So we went out to get it. And um, we already have a lot of video. We already have it. We can pull out uh, thousands of hours. I, my filmmaker and I have been working together for 12 years now, so we, we sort of developed our own genre of presentation on the permaculture DVDs we produced, but we, we knew what people wanted, and we knew what climates they wanted demonstrated, and we've still got a large list to cover, but we were able to sort of run and gun film fast, and luckily my sort of ability to X-factor in front of the camera and ad-lib as I go makes it look quite natural, and um, we were able to do it quite quickly. So we did uh, a 10-day trip through America, and probably pulled off uh, nine major um, video presentations that are all going to be presented one by one, plus many things here in Australia. And now we're planning other trips to sort of service, service the inquiry for people. We want people to feel confident. So all the different climates, all the different landscapes, and all the different applications that they're going to need to get that sort of real independent permaculture's got uh, to give you. You've released your first one already, and I'll have a link in the show notes for those who haven't seen it yet, but it was on uh, raising chickens for eggs with no grain in a compost facility. Uh, can you, you talk a little bit about uh, that? I think that was something that for you when you saw that was a, a really new kind of uh, paradigm-shifting uh, thing to look at. Yeah. yeah, that was just one of those happy accidents. It's often the happy little accidents that give you that hinge pin event in it. This is just one little peg in the, in, in, the, in the wheel here. This is one little spoke in the wheel that I didn't really see before. And it's been right in front of us all this time. Many people have commented that they've seen the event, but not orchestrated it into specific composting. We just released this video because we wanted to see the inquiry. The inquiry has been high. People are very interested. They can see the relationship. Now they want the specifics. So later on we'll be... We're putting together a very specific variation of that. But we came across Carl Hammer by accident. We were at Ben Falk's place in Vermont, in Montepelia, near Montepelia. Uh, we were told about Carl Hammer's Vermont compost. Compost is one of my favorite subjects. Obviously, it's a crucial part of natural soil fertility. And uh, I'd heard about this chicken event. I thought it was interesting. I went and had a look. Carl's quite a character, and, and I ended up in a very deep diving conversation with him, academically challenging, going right through all the specifics of compost and soil organisms and all the events in the sort of microcosm. It was uh, really entertaining. I definitely lost my filmmaker quite a few times who was wondering what he was filming. We were there nearly three 
hours, we went from one end of the system to the other. And I must say, it's some of the best-looking compost and most tested compost I've ever seen. And there was something very unusual about that front end. There was something about that chicken interaction between the elements that are assembled in the pit, which is really just uh, inoculated straw from the bedding, large bedding straw and mulch that's in the chicken house, mixed with the specific amount of ruminant and other manures with uh, food scraps for one week processed and then piled, still of interest to the chickens, then turned and piled again, still a little bit interesting to the chickens. One more turn and they've nearly lost interest. Another turn, there's no interest. Specifically, the organisms have got smaller and more refined and they are not so visible to the chickens. But at the front end, there's a lot of larger organisms in the decomposition process. And I'm pretty sure they're inoculating the life organism process into a fast track, almost like the giant predator that's controlling the life elements within the compost ecosystem at the beginnings of the process. Now, if we're assembling things the right way, the end result is this high-quality start to the the compost processing system. You've still got to process on for a while, minus chickens, but you got one hell of a start. Now, I could see it. I, I could see what I, it was designed. It was designed specific. Carl's got 20 years of on-ground research refinement in there and, and really totally underrated. And, and this, I, I kept thinking, can I bring this down in size? And I couldn't stop thinking about it for a month. I've designed it for a, a medium acreage, a small acreage. I'm designing for urban, right? The smallest you can go because compost has an initial size. You can't, you've got to have a certain size for compost to work. You can't just sure. go down to a bucket. It's got to be, sure. you know, because there's a heat event involved in there. But um, what's the smallest? I'm not so interested in the largest. I never really am. I really like the small farmer, the small gardener. I like the splendid things. That's why I like to help the masses of people. But I've designed a mobile system where we can walk through a row crop, leaving five to eight cubic meters behind us every week or down an orchard road, like down, 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 down an access track to a food forest. I'm designing these systems where we walk it and, and, and by default we're leaving three, four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever the system likes, cubic meters of compost behind the system as it walks through the landscape. Now, whoa, is that is that an asset to one of these polycultural, multi-element systems that we put together. People are asking for production figures. They're asking for soil fertility figures. They're asking for product quality figures. That, a special little event potential in there. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure this is going to be quite something as we develop it. So um, I'm really very grateful to Carl for all that uh, 20 years of research. And his, uh, his reputation precedes him with the quality of his, his compost. In Vermont, he's supplying 500 growers, and uh, he's quite correct when he says he launches a colony of organisms with each potted vegetable or, you know, uh, little potted mix package that goes with a tree or whatever into a field soil. But um, he's actually selling compost all the way to Iowa for people who are growing for locavores. <laughs> wow. And, he, and those growers are prepared to prepared to cop the flack from their locavore clients, customers, because they're bringing compost all the way from Vermont. Now, that says something. This is quality stuff. I, I, I had it in my hand looking at the man with the, you know, with the gleam in his eye that he knew what he was doing. And it was, 
And he was still fussy. At the finished end, he was still talking to his permaculture trained workers. His workers have taken the PDC. They're the ones who pulled me in, actually. And he said, and just a bit more moisture on this. Don't let this lose moisture. It's right at the far end, and it's just the most perfect, fluffy-looking thing. It's like, wow. Uh, now all of that, all of that will expand it all, and uh, we want to open it right up. And like Carl says, his system is free to leave. And, and this is what we're discovering with a lot of this stuff. Most of the people who've got the cutting-edge stuff, uh, your stuff, my stuff, a lot of us, um, it's free. It's free to leave. We, we just need, somehow we need to finance the way we educate people and let people know about it, and we just love them to take it and run. That's how you know, we're going to get everybody liberal. That's how the liberation is going to work, isn't it, Jack? <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, when I saw that, I mean, I emailed you on this, and you might have thought, I was like, oh, sure. But, I mean, honest to God, we have been pulling our hair out with what to do with my Western pasture. It's one of the most degraded pieces of land I've ever seen. The soils there make the stuff we did in with the swales in the east pasture look great. I mean, it's just rock, shallow, hardly anything growing. And the solution that we came up with about a week before I got that video from you was a low-tech version of what you're talking about. Not Nowhere near as refined, but we basically just started roping off 20 by 60 foot sections, layering it five, six inches deep in organic matter, putting all the chickens' food and water in that section. And, and when the guy said free to leave about his birds, I was like, that's exactly, we're not holding the birds in that section. It's just, it's the most attractive place for them on the land. Uh, and I'd like to actually hold them in there. It's just a matter of, I've got a place where I can't even stick a freaking stake in the ground to hold up netting. Um, but I think that can be used, like you're saying, in an orchard or a garden or a polycultured food forest. But I also think that very technique can be used to completely rehab pastures that are totally desolate. You know, we've got to do something to get some earthworks in there, I think, just, just to stop the erosion. But other than that, I think that's the ticket for that piece of land until it's a little healthier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's so many really good interactions that you can put in the mobile elements, the animal elements, and get your timing right, keep your eye on it. And, and they work so well. Um, so we're, we're, we're involved here with a lot of um, electric net moved poultry now. Uh, we have been for a while putting in food forests and interacting with gardens. And now we're moving the compost element in there at the same time. So I think these are even, we're all coming to the same conclusion at the same time. And we're sharing it as best we can. So the the, when I, the other thing I thought of when I, when I saw what you, like, I was watching this going, that's awesome, that's awesome. And right at the end, you kind of leak what you're going to give up next on this, what you're going to do with it. And my big thought was, and then from what you just said, same thing, when we typically do compost, we take all of this stuff, we put it in a place, we make a great big pile, we run it through a you know 21 to 28-day cycle, we get it all, and then we have to take it and put it somewhere. But this method... The birds do the work, and we leave it where it needs to be anyway. So there's very little work after the compost is created with it being mobile. Yeah, so you can you can walk it through a system, um, and and if you want to push the production in that system, uh, you have regular you, you you have them at regular events continuously walking through the system, so that they're, they're endlessly walking in lineage cycle through a system. They come back to the beginning of the line and go down the line again. Just keep. So you can work out, you know, okay, every week I've got to deal with eight cubic meters of compost. Well, what a problem. <laughs> <laughs>
that's, that's a lot of compost. And and we all know that, Jeff, you've referred to yourself as a compost artist. Yeah, master chef, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, um, maybe we could just tease a little bit more on some of these videos because you've got this infographic out. I'm so, so um, right now I'm on your I'm on permaculturenews.org. Uh, I think everybody should be subscribed to it. I'm looking at a, a little infographic you have for all these videos coming out. And I'm wondering if we could give a little bit of information, a little teaser on some of these other ones. One says chicken tractor on steroids. I'm going to bet that has something to do with what we were just talking about. One that's really intriguing to me, it says, yikes, bananas in a cold climate. So what's up with that? Okay, what we've got is a, a video about cold climate, and uh, we've particularly got cold climate perennial vegetables, and we're up in Massachusetts visiting Eric Tosmeyer and Jonathan Bates' garden, which has 200 varieties of cold climate perennials, and we go to cold climate community gardens that are themed tropical. So we go to a Puerto Rican community garden, and we go to a Jamaican community garden, but they're in cold climates. And we reassure people what kind of incredible diversity is possible in the cold climates. And we explain that and give people that confidence that cold climates are fine. Uh, in many instances, they're, in some ways, they're easier. There's certain things you can't do. You're not going to be growing tons of mangroves in, in, in Connecticut or anything. Um, but... In some ways, they're easier to deal with as far as managing soil loss and things like that. Now, another thing we were talking about is you get a lot of objections, I think, or concerns or questions. I'm not sure what the word is from people when they're watching your videos and things. One's cold climates. And the other thing is because you guys have done so many cool things with elevation shifts is people think that it's difficult to do permaculture on flat land. Yeah. So uh, we've visited one of the iconic flatland systems in the world um, and that comes out um, Friday morning, America time. It's our new uh, video release, uh, America's Food Forest Suburb. And uh, we're in totally flat land with very, very little slope. And the video starts off with a, uh, a shot of what the land looked like 38 years ago, which was a flat plowed field, um, cornfield. And 38 years later, I walk across the road and you're actually in Forest Paradise suburb. And we go through and explain that and show what is really possible and what and the way we should be living in urban landscape. So, so with all this going on, um, are you getting ready to maybe let students uh, back into the, the online PDC? Is that where you're heading with this? Yeah, we're about to see how much interest there is out there and um, you know we should start to run and program for our next online um, we're just about to the last and we're, we're, we're just having a, a, a bit of fun getting people stirred up again and, and interested in okay well let's see if we can help people through the next process of education very cool man so uh, do you have any inkling about when that's going to be because I know people are going to be asking if I don't ask you I think it'll be early, early 2014. Uh, we're probably looking for a date somewhere around February, late February, March, somewhere around there. We should be ready. We'd like to release as many videos as we can. So we, we've got people's interest. Uh, we're aiming at people who, who really need that introduction to permaculture. Um, we need, we, we really want that 99% of people, that audience that really needs that initial introduction so they can really fire up and get started. And we can increase the numbers globally. We're really, I'm really very, very interested in trying to reach that tipping point and, and push the tipping point forward, uh, you know, as fast as we can.
Well, great, man. I, I appreciate you being on the show with us again today. Um, as you progress with this, anytime you want to be back uh, on the air with us, you have uh, an absolute open invitation. We always have a little bit of trouble connecting due to the time differential that involves being in different days, let alone different hours. Um, but you are always welcome here, and I appreciate the work you're doing. I think when you're talking here toward the end about reaching the 99% that don't know what permaculture is, I think what you're doing with these videos and, and other people are doing with, with similar videos and documentaries and mini documentaries is one of the most important things we can be doing because once you are kind of hooked and you're kind of, you know, strapped in and you get that's what's possible, the, the words and the lectures all make sense. But for the person that's not aware, it's the visual reality that jars them out of this belief that it just has to be straight rows of corn and beans uh, or that, you know, gardening is, is hard or that, you know, you can only do so much in a certain climate. And I think when you see it and you see an absolute abundance being created in these environments, then you want to know more. And that makes the person receptive. And it's great when they take a PDC, but if they'll just start down the path of permaculture, the more people we can do that for, the more we can release people from this, this belief that they have to be dependent upon systems, uh, whereas they could be establishing their own systems and looking after themselves, uh, their, their families, and their communities. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, And I really appreciate your outreach there because you're, you're reaching so many people. And, and, you know, the more of us work together like this, the quicker we'll get the job done, hopefully. Well, that was awesome. And, again, thank you guys uh, for understanding the work that went into that from both ends for us to get that interview done for you. And I wish it could have been longer. And Jeff's always been gracious towards us, and I'm sure he'll come back again, and hopefully we can do it at a time where we have less um, technical interference. And we could talk some more about questions you guys have for Jeff. If you have questions for Jeff Lawton in an upcoming episode, please send me an email. Put question for Jeff. And the way you spell Jeff for those that are new to the show and new to Jeff is that fancy European way, G-E-O-F-F, not J-E-F-F, G-E-O-F-F, question for Jeff. And I'll put it into a folder, and next time we have him on, we'll pull from that folder and ask him some questions. Anything you want to ask about permaculture, permaculture design courses, uh, or things that you uh, maybe would want to see from Jeff, let him know, and, and we'll, uh, we'll be the go-between on that. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about with you guys today is you heard me ask Jeff about the bananas in warm climates. And I was looking at the little, and there's, I have a link today for you guys onto permaculturenews.org where you can see basically everything that's coming up or many of the things that are coming up. Uh, and it, I saw the picture with the bananas and I thought, I think I know that picture and I think I know that guy, but it's like a little thumbnail on it. And it is exactly what I thought it was. He mentions Eric Tossmeyer on there. Now, Eric is the guy that co-wrote, uh, edible forest gardens with Dave Jackie. And I, I know Dave said flat out, there is no way those books, which are like the fundamental resource on temperate climate forest gardening, uh, the species profiles alone are worth the entire cost of the books, that it could have never happened without Eric. Eric was the academic that did the massive amounts of research, consolidating those tables, finding blue times, Latin names, species, how they interacted, uh, what, what fixes nitrogen, all that stuff Eric did. He's an awesome guy. And when I had met Dave uh, up in Montana, he told me about a new book that Eric and, a, and, a, and a, his partner, Jonathan Bates, had released, and it was called Paradise Lot. 
And because I read that book, I know an awful lot about what you guys are going to see when that video comes out uh, of their Massachusetts garden with all these perennials. I actually wanted to tell you a little bit of the story of Paradise Lot, though. And, you know, with uh, if you know anybody that's in the gardening and permaculture and, 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 and likes interesting stories to go along with it, this would make a great Christmas present. Paradise Lot is the story of how Jonathan and, and Eric met each other, and they're both kind of plant geeks, and they both have this dream someday of having you know this really nice farm and having women in their lives and things like that, but they only had so much money to work with, and they're going on about their lives, and they do some projects together, and you know at, at the time they first meet, Eric's working with Dave Jackie. He finishes up that, that work, and they have more time. And they end up deciding, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find an urban area and do this on an urban scale. And then one day later, we'll do this on a bigger scale. And as they look for properties, they're trying to think about, well, how do we do this? We're two guys. We can live together. But we also have this aspiration to one day both have ladies in our lives. And, you know, how's that going to work when you're, you know, living in this house together with, you know, uh, another guy? And so eventually they end up finding this property This long strip of land, completely bare, totally compacted. It looks like a dirt parking lot, but it's a duplex. Then they're like, well, what we'll do is we'll move into one side, and we'll fix up the other side eventually. And if we ever, maybe we could end up with like a two-family, multi-family thing. And that's eventually what happens. But they transform this backyard into something like you, you can't believe when they start rattling off the number of things growing there. And the bananas are grown in the front, and the house basically faces south, and it's kind of baked in the sun. And they don't produce bananas where you get bananas to eat. Uh, they do freeze to the ground in the Massachusetts winter, and a banana generally needs about 14 to 16 months of growth to produce. And then it's a perennial that produces abundantly over and over again. But the herbaceous growth needs you know, more than a year to be able to produce. So what they've actually been able to do, though, is harness the heat in the front of this house. And again, in Massachusetts... Right, I mean, Virginia is one thing. Massachusetts guys gets cold, especially in this era of global cooling and all. Jonathan and Eric would probably have a heart attack if they heard me say that in reference to their work because they're both big on the global warming thing. But anyway, um, it's cold there. It's very cold. And they've got not just bananas but a lot of other tropical-themed plants in their front yard. A lot of it out in the front isn't really edible stuff. It's designed to show what you can do with a microclimate. And they put the majority of the edibles into their backyard. Um, all I can say is that Paradise Lot is an incredible resource. It's a great book, and I'll, I'll tell you what makes it so good. When I look and I sit down to read Edible Forest Gardens, I, I have a hard time just reading it, especially the, the second edition. It's more of a reference book, and you go back to it from time to time and read four or five pages and go back and read four or five pages because it's written like a textbook. Um, Eric's other book called Perennial Vegetables is an extremely valuable resource, and I've paged through it many times and read different parts of it, but I can't sit down and just read through it. Paradise Lot is a story. With all of the information blended into it, very, very 
elegantly, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's not like it's jammed in there, like a lot of taxonomy and all kind. It's just, you know, we did this, we planted that, and this worked, and that didn't work. But it's all built into the narrative of, and we were trying to get this, and I met this girl, and... You know, then I got this job doing this, and her background was that, and this is how we worked that out. Here's how we worked with another group, and here's how we got involved with this Hispanic farming group. And the whole way that it plays out is is a true story that's interesting. And all along the way, you hear a plant name and go, what is that? And you look it up, and you go, wow, if they can grow that there, I can definitely grow that here. And it's uh, it's just a great book, and I think that you'll be really impressed when you see uh, Eric and Jonathan's place up in Massachusetts and the other properties around there that they've worked on and consulted with, I think will be part of this as well. Next, I want to talk about the video that was released today. He, he mentioned in the interview it was going to show you what you can do on flat land. I thought, well, maybe they're going back to Jordan or something like that, you know. Um, but then it comes out as an urban video. Flatland, urban? You know, I'm thinking urban or suburban, is this going to be another tour of a small backyard like we've seen before? And I start playing it, I realize right away what it is. It's Village Homes. Village Homes in California, which is about a 60-acre property, if I remember right, and it's got um, a lot of houses. A pretty, I don't remember the exact numbers, even though I just watched the video twice. Um, but it's 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 more than you would think. It's like 120 houses on 60 acres or something something like that. And the houses are relatively close together, and most of the the land is this distributed community land throughout the whole subdivision. And there's swales in it, and there's and you can watch the video to see all this. But there's fruit trees that you can tell were planted a couple of years ago, and there's fruit trees that are 38 years old. And the swales in this system. That they put in when they des- they designed the earthworks and then built onto the system. By the third year, had water infiltration down 17 feet or 19 feet, something like that. And at that point, it doesn't matter how much further you infiltrate moisture into the ground, because at that point you can grow any tree that will grow in the climate that you're in. Period, and it'll grow and it'll thrive, and you don't have to irrigate. And what I loved about this video is that it's a re, it's a it's a trip back to a place that Jeff's mentor Bill Bill Mollison had already been in 1983. Bill Mollison did a series called The Global Gardener. I've, I've mentioned it many times on the air. I recommend everybody watch it. It's free on YouTube. You can buy the DVDs if you want better quality because YouTube videos are a little iffy on quality because it's old it's old video from 1983 then made into YouTube videos. But um, so he goes there in '83, and in '83 it didn't look that much different than it does today, other than the pictures are better and the video quality is better and things like that. And what I did not realize, based on doing the math now, in 1983 when Bill went there, Village Homes had been established for about eight years, eight years, because we're looking at 30 years back to '83. And Jeff's saying the first trees were planted there 38 years ago. So when you watch the original video with Bill, you're looking at a system that had been in establishment for eight years, and it was gloriously abundant. It was awesome. And to look at it today and see what it's become and basically the stability that was installed. Because in 30 years, there's no degradation 
And the system's bigger and fuller and there's more, but it looks very, very similar and it's functioning the same way. Now, the people that live there do little bits of maintenance here and there. They go out and about and they gather whatever they want. But, you know, they, they're not really on it because Jeff said there's so much fallen fruit that's not even being used that he had some of it sticking to his feet. Um, it's, it's absolutely amazing how well established that system is. And most of these houses use very little to no grid energy. They're harvesting their own water. They're using passive uh, technologies to keep cool and warm. Uh, and, and they're showing what can be done uh, without being tied to a grid. They have roofs where there's, you know, earth top roofs with gardens on the roofs. Um, it's, it's fascinating. The difference in what Bill showed us and what Jeff showed us 30 years later, Bill focused more on the people, uh, their living conditions and the children. And what I'd like you to do, if you if you could this weekend, is take the time to watch Jeff's new video and watch Bill's old video. And in Bill's old video, a bit into it, I've got a link where it's the, the whole DVD's there, but I have it going straight to the part on Village Homes for you if you use the link. It's about 16 minutes in if you're going to just look it up and do it yourself. And again, it's it's Global Gardener Urban. That's the one that you're looking for. Um, this little boy's there on a bike, and he's talking about all the things they do And I'd say he looks like he's about 10 to 12 years old. And he's talking about, you know, picking the fruit, chasing the grapevines, playing hide-and-seek, all these things that he's doing, living amongst this abundance. Okay, that kid's probably about my age or a little older right now. And the place he grew up in, unlike a lot of places we've grown up in, is not lost. It's still there. It's still flourishing because it was placed into such a state of abundance that, it, that the people that have it, you can bet they're going to protect it. I grew up hunting and fishing in places that you can't hunt or fish in anymore because those places were just seen as, oh, there's some un, you know, developed land there. Let's go develop it. Whereas this was developed in such a way that it's inherently protected because of what it's become. And to realize that if I want my grandkids to have something that I have today, then it's incumbent upon me in some ways not just to preserve wilderness, but to actually establish things that will be so valued that they won't be developed in another way. And that maybe one of the best ways we can start to preserve wilderness is even in wilderness environments, begin some level of development that is also beneficial beyond just there's deer there. And I have this crazy dream someday of getting myself about 20 acres of river bottom land somewhere in, in, in Texas and permaculturing it for wildlife, permaculturing it as hunting land, permaculturing it as a hunter-gatherer piece of property that's not designed to go in and just harvest. Some of that can be done, but most of what's done there is to create abundance that attracts wildlife, that works with the system so that it's great hunting land. Beyond what it would be if it was just river bottom land in Texas with some feeders on it. Because that's not sustainable. So that's part of what I got out of the contrast there that I think a lot of people would miss. Um, 
The other thing I got out of it is how much Jeff explained that Bill didn't about the infrastructure itself. How it's not just there's a swale in between these two rows of houses. And that that's all common land and there's all these trees and fruit and grapevines and all this abundance. But Jeff shows places where like, okay, here's the road. Here's what looks like a storm drain. Unlike a typical storm drain that goes subterranean and takes the water away, this one pops out, drops down in, goes down through a ditch. Ditch hits a sluice box. The sluice box determines how much water and when comes down into the rest of the property. And that goes down into passive swale distribution system. Holy crap. Right, And then he shows, like, okay, well, here's a sidewalk going through the community. And it's got this little bitty curb on it. And then it's got this one spot where the curb just rolls down to the side. That soaks into a level path. The level path soaks into the swale. The entire system is a water harvesting system. And everywhere that water falls on that property or anywhere around it where it can be harvested, it's put into the soil. And this is Davis, California, guys. This isn't like, you know, it's easy to say, oh, it's tropical or whatever. This isn't tropical. It gets cold enough to, to, to freeze stuff in, in the wintertime in Davis. Um, and it's not like, you know, the Everglades where they get a lot of rain. It's not as dry as some parts of California. We're talking about 20 inches of rainfall a year. As far as temperatures go, generally they stay out of freezing temperatures, but they do get down into them. Uh, you know, average lows in, in January, December time frame, about 38 degrees. Um, highest recorded temperature, um, in global warming, right? 116 degrees way back in, dun, 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 1925. Uh, lowest recorded temperature, four degrees Fahrenheit in 1981. So this is not a place that's, you know, just a real simple environment, but yet they made it look simple by what they did. So I'm telling you, I think if you watch the two videos and the contrast between them, the big takeaways you'll get, the longevity of the system, the, the, the rapid rate at which the system was installed, given that Bill was there eight years after installation, um, the stability of the system to be so similar in 30-plus years later, and just the impact of thinking about the little kids you see in this video are now probably, if you're like me, your age, if you're younger, they're older than you. And if you're an older person, they're, you know, probably, you know, the age of your, your, your oldest children. Um, and that maybe when you were my age, that they were that age playing in streets. And what is the difference in the places that your children held sacred in 1983? If you had kids in 1983, or if you were a kid in 83, I want you to think about the places that you held sacred the way a kid does. The, the special places. The places, because in this video, they talk about the, the, the parents talk about there's places the kids know here that we don't. Because kids explore places that parents don't. For me, there were these woods that I used to play in when I lived in Jacksonville, Florida. There's swamps I used to play in. And my friends and I would go in there and hike and pretend we were miles away from everything and we would fish in the creeks, uh, and we would go and harvest, uh, you know, shellfish and crabs in the, in the marshlands and swamps because it was along St. John's River. Uh, there was places we would go and we would find pieces of clay pots from the Timicoy Indians. Um, it was a magical place that we grew up in. It doesn't feel good when I pull it up on Google, Google Earth today. It's all houses, standard suburban houses. It's a, a big apartment complexes. The land that's still there is for sale. 
Uh, and in one piece, I could even see the sign on the Street View Zone commercial. Um, that's for me in Florida, you know, at like 10, 11 years of age. When I think about where I shot my first deer, um, there's a house there now. And the contrast to me there is, 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 is really telling as to what permaculture can do. I, I think its greatest power might be that it can make people love a piece of property so much that they'll do whatever it takes to defend and protect it. Not with some just patriotic zeal, but with a deeper understanding of what it really is and, and how valuable it really is. And that's something that we've largely lost is an understanding of the true value of land. Instead, we think of it as cut up little boxes that can be developed one way or another instead of the true intrinsic wealth that it represents. And that's something that Jeff says. You know, He says in his video, okay, here's an apple tree. It's 38 years old. You cannot buy that. You have to plant it 38 years ago for it to exist. You can't dig it up and move it now. It won't work. No matter how much money you have, you can't have this unless you have the land that it's on and the people that own this generally are not interested in selling it to you. And that's true wealth. And I think that that's what permaculture really is to me is the building of true intrinsic wealth. And it's about time mankind started to focus on true wealth instead of abstract, abstract artificial wealth. Um, the next thing I want to talk about with you guys today is an article I just read um, on Permaculture News that chronicles a video or chronicles a visit to a farm that Jeff Lawton uh, along with some, did some consulting etc and helped establish and this is in Jordan and it's it's very inspiring just to uh just to go through it sorry about that uh it's the wife needing to call me so I'm going to pause live uh podcasting right here and I'll be back and uh See what she needs first. All right, I'm back. It was no big deal. Just some stuff about this evening. Uh, we're going to go see our kiddo. Anyway, um, this stuff that I found in... The, the stuff I found in this article that's been done in Jordan in three years is, is, is kind of unbelievable. Jordan, uh, by the way, is not that much different in climate in some ways than where I live. We're at very close to the same latitude, uh, I get a lot more rain, and I've got a lot better soil, and they get less cold. Uh, I think that's that's the best way to describe the differences there. They have sand, and I have soil. Uh, I have rock, and they have rock. They get a little bit of rain. I get a decent amount of rain. I get 30-ish inches a year, where they get about, like, 8. Um, and uh, I get a lot more freezing temperatures, and I can't grow citrus the way that they can. But otherwise, there's you know, sounds like a lot of difference, but there's actually a lot of similarities in the overall uh, time frame. Well, what they did in this place, because it's so flat, they put this swale in. It doesn't look like a typical swale. It's got a berm on both sides of it. Because it's so flat, what they pretty much have done probably, it looks to me like, is they've gone in and basically created a, a, a contour uh, with a dozer and just graded it uh, to make it work with the profile because it was so close to flat anyway, and then created this pathway. And the swale is soaking all this water into the soil, hydrating the land. Every time they do a little bit of drip irrigation, it's 100% harvested, but you still have this, this baking sun beating down on pretty much bare earth. So 
they decided they wanted to grow grass and, and, and vegetation in the bottom of the swales to further the infiltration and to help prevent evaporation. But that was difficult to do. So what they did is they put arches made out of, it looks like just kind of black, uh, you know, steel. Uh, like you make basic frames out of it and things like that. Like it's, you know, shaped like a square or rectangle, uh, about half inch stuff. And they tack welded together and shaped almost like the top of a house. So it's like a, a rooftop. You can look at the pictures. There's a link in the uh, show notes today. And then they planted trees and vines that would go across this and create this beautiful pathway so that when you walk through the swale, you're looking up at vegetation. So the swale's now harvesting the water, but it's, pre it's prevented from having heavy evaporation. And I looked at that and went, you know what, we can do that right here. There's no reason we can't do that on the swales that we just installed. And I started thinking to myself, what would be the best way to do this? And then I thought to myself, Jack, you're a dumbass. You already know. I've got hog panels everywhere around here. And a couple of them we've put into places, like just made them like shaped like a covered wagon. They'll work perfectly. And when you walk through the bottom of the swale, you have plenty of clearance there. And my thought is we can do grapes. We can do maypop. We can do kiwi. We can do anything that will vine and do well in our climate up on those things. And you almost have a chinampa system now. Because <laughs> whenever you have a rain event, that swale floods and collects organic matter and fertility. And the reduction of evaporation is huge, but you're actually going to infiltrate the downgrade side of the, uh, the swale a lot more than the upgrade, but you will get some infiltration, especially in really flat landscapes, back into the upgrade side. And the whole landscape is going to be hydrating over the next two to five years, very, very heavily. And we can now take a, a, an area that would largely have been open and turn it into this awesome system. And how cool will it be then to take our chickens in the heat of summer and run them through the bottom of that shaded swale where they'll do, they'll pick up all of the, 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 the fruit fall of what's ever dropped. They'll help the water continue to infiltrate by digging up the bottom. Their humic buildup that they'll help create will continue to break down the limestone rock that's, that's just under the bottom of these swales. And all of the fertility that they place in there will slowly seep in a fertility cycle through the rest of the landscape. And when we want to pick grapes or passion fruit or kiwi or whatever else we can come up with to put up on these things, like even annuals like beans and tomatoes can be part of this system, we can just take a walk underneath this shaded system and reach up above and pick whatever we like. Um, I've never seen this done before. And I've never seen what I'm going to do done before at all. I mean, it's, this, this is still different there. Um, and this is, I wanted to kind of talk about this at the end because I want you to start realizing as you're looking at these videos from Jeff and, and from everybody else doing wonderful things in permaculture, start thinking, how can I adapt this? How can I harness this? I mean, the stuff about you know growing chickens on compost, basically, is, is amazing, but 
That's what one guy's doing with it. He's got an egg yield. He's got a compost yield. He's got a very successful business. He's probably got a hundred different grocery stores that are willing to give him scraps, and only so many people can do that. But being able to take that system, run, you know, maybe a, a waste collection little thing in your neighborhood, uh, just give people a bucket and say, leave it out, you know, on on your doorstep every Tuesday, and I'll come pick it up. And getting twenty or thirty people doing that for you—that's something anybody can do. There's a long time before anybody gets in anybody's way about who gets whose garbage. We're we're way away from that. And then being able to create, you know, Jeff was saying, you know, six cubic meters, eight cubic meters of compost a week. Once you get a system running, I don't care if it's one. Can you imagine what you do to an acre of land if you're producing 50 cubic meters of compost? 50 cubic meters of compost on it a year. And and what your yield results are from your birds as far as meat and eggs, if you're not feeding them at this point at all. And I don't care if you're feeding them some. I don't care if you're giving them you know, two cups of feed a day to a flock of a couple dozen birds. It's still it's 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 meaningless. And and frankly, if it makes them happy, great. If not, keep them working. And so I'm looking now at how I can do this. Now I want to tell you one more thing before I let you go today. Just what an awesome guy Jeff is. So I've been pulling my hair out with this Western pasture because it's so degraded. You hear me mention it during the interview with him briefly. There are places where the soil over there is two inches deep, and you just can't go in there and dig up swales. Because even if you got a big machine with a rock hammer in there, like a 25-ton excavator rock hammer, started blasting away at it and pulling up. What do you do with all this disgusting rock now? I mean, this rock is hideous. It's ugly. It's not like it's granite or something that when you you could pull it out and make stacks out of it and then build stuff with it and make it look cool. It just doesn't look good. It's It looks like the foundation of a blown-up building. You know, that's what it, it just looks like rubble from a construction project because it's a conglomerate caliche limestone rock, right? Instead of pebbles like concrete has in it, it's got seashells. You can't tell till you look real close. It looks like busted up concrete. So what do I do with all this? You know, and I explained to him that I have these huge piles just from the work we did in the, in the east pasture where the soil is deep. These like five, six huge piles. Of this stuff, I gotta figure out how to get rid of it and where to hide it. I can only bury so much of it in, in my elevated platforms. You know, and I'm talking about what do I, I'm like, you know, I was thinking about basically just doing what you said to do with these chickens on that property and just running them through there for three or four seasons and just, just adding, you know, if I can do two meters, I can do a hundred meters of compost a year for two years. It's 400 cubic meters of compost. That would be great. He's like, you could do that, but you could also do this. And, you know, I'm like, we're thinking about it. I said, here's a crazy thought I had. And, and maybe this is nuts, but you tell me, Jeff. I said, I was thinking about doing xi farming with a 25-ton excavator with a rock hammer. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you bring the rock hammer excavator in there, but you don't dig anything up. You just take the rock hammer and you just put it into the ground about two feet, bah, down in a hole. And then you pull it up and you do it again. You just you checkerboard the whole field that way. So basically you've created these holes and this fracturing in the limestone, and then you bring in compost and topsoil and into those holes, and basically you've created a giant xi. 
And I didn't have to explain to Jeff what it was. He knew exactly what I was talking about, but I'll explain it to you real quick. In Africa, they do this technique called zai farming. They go out in this really hard-packed soil. They get shovels and, and picks, and, and they dig a hole about you know two feet in diameter and about half a foot deep, and they fill it with compost. And they do this like every three feet like a checkerboard. And then they plant in between, not in the holes, they plant in between the holes, and it opens the ground up and lets the fertility and water into the land when it rains. And he's like, no, 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 do it on contour. I'm like, what? He goes, mark your contour lines how you're going to do swales, get the machine in there, put the rock hammer in the ground, bash it in, pull it up, move over 18 inches on contour, do it again. Move over 18 inches and just go down the whole contour line and punch into the rock and fracture the rock. And sooner or later, you'll run into places where the rock's naturally fractured. So that's what we're going to do. We'll bash the rock, but we won't excavate it. He says, now, when you when you go in, you are going to push the ground up. As you displace the rock, it will push what soil you have and what rock up into a slight berm. So then go get a bunch of straw bales and right on the downgrade side of that berm, put a line of straw bales to help with erosion because you're not going to have a swale ditch to help with erosion. And then bring in dirt and build berms. Build swale berms up instead of swale ditches down. Leave your sills just like you normally would and do that throughout the landscape wherever you would normally put a swale and go plant and start mostly with your hardy legume trees that can get into that rock and infiltrate that rock. And he's like, if it works pretty good and once you get that, that hammer in the ground, if it's pretty easy to break. And I think... With that type of equipment, and I can get that big piece of equipment on that piece of property, with that type of equipment, it won't be that hard. He's like, well, then go in your inner swales and do additional contours where you don't put in berms. So if you put in three or four berms, actually fracture. So instead of normally what you would do here, you put a swale in in this, these tough, compacted landscapes, and then you go downgrade, put another swale in, and in between the swales, you get like a big bulldozer with a ripper on it, like a big hook goes down in the ground, or a big or a big heavy-duty yeoman's plow, and you rip a hole, a, 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 a line in the land on contour. So you'd further the infiltration in the inner swale. He's like, well, just do the bashing. So the machine will bash a contour line, you build a berm. Bash a contour line, just leave it. Bash a contour line, build a berm. Bash a contour line, leave it. And then graze your birds through there. Plant it to forest, Protect the trees, the establishing trees from the birds, but graze them through there and build your compost on that. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, for him to take the extra time to do that for me was awesome. And I've got a key now to how to take land like we have here and terraform it in a way that I, I, I've never come up with before. And, and the reality is that that wasn't something Jeff's like, oh, I've done this before. This is, this is what you do. Just, right, mate? You just do this. This was Jeff, me, and Josiah sitting here discussing the problem collaboratively and de developing a new solution on the fly. That you can just take my experience, Joe's experience, Jeff's experience, and, and analyze the solution, even though it's not quite ever been done stacked together this way before. Desert swales where you can't dig with hay bales, and, 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 and the, the, he told me that's been done. Bashing rock in certain ways to open it up, that's been putting those together and stacking those functions together. I don't know any place that's ever been done. It didn't sound like he did either, but now we have a new solution to an old problem. 
That's the power of permaculture. It's why I spend so much time on it. It's a critical thinking. And we have so many problems in the world. If you listen to this show, you listen to it because you're aware of the problems that exist in society, both in our past and in our future. We can see what we've done wrong and what we're going to end up paying for. It's really evident. Well, you know, I hope no one out there listening to this show has a lot of faith that the government is going to fix your problems or that the major corporations of the world are going to fix these problems because they're not going to. They're largely profiting and benefiting from these problems. And when it comes to a point where that's no longer the case and the problems rear their head to the point where they're truly detrimental and unsolvable and unstoppable as far as they're concerned, they're not going to know what to do. You cannot turn to the people that created a problem and ask them to give you a solution. It's like going to a bank robber and asking him to protect your bank. You know? It's like, it's actually, that would be more productive. That would be more productive than turning to the government for a solution. At least the bank robber knows how robberies take place and you could probably purchase his honesty. Right? The government is not like a bank. The bank robber takes what he gets and he leaves, right? The, the government takes and takes and takes and never leaves and always wants more. And when you're productive, they penalize you for it. So it would be more like asking the fox to guard your hen house. The untrained wild fox, like spreading out lures to attract foxes, leaving the door of your hen house open... And saying, well, foxes are mean little critters, so they'll protect my chickens from all the other mean little critters. You end up with a bunch of dead chickens. That's what's going to happen if you put your faith in government. So that, then, then that, you know, or you put your faith in the pharmaceutical companies that make a living on your illnesses, not your health. It's the same thing. So that leaves you at a point where you're going to have to make a decision that when these things come to a head, I am going to solve my own problem. Great. How? And the answer is, you don't know yet. But if you have the mental training for the critical thinking to assemble all of the assets that you have available, place them together, stack their functionality, stack in space, stack in time, you can solve a problem, whether it's why a business is losing money, why a community can't get along, or why a tree won't grow. It's a repetitive pattern. Just like we learn about patterns in permaculture, repetitive patterns in life and humanity and politics. And I don't mean politics like Democrats and Republicans. I mean politics in its true nature is the interaction between human beings and how people with different views get along. That's real politics. And that pattern is there as well. That that pattern can be trouble shock. Because everybody's just looking to make sure that they can live their life their way without interference. It's what people really want. The reason they interfere with others is they feel that their own way of life is threatened. So if I can go in there and critically analyze that problem and troubleshoot it and make both parties feel comfortable, we can take most of those problems and make them go away. And that's a place where when government intervenes, it never tries to do that. What does it do? It decides one party is wrong and the other is right, sides with one party and shits on the other one. Okay? That's the government solution. It's not a solution of mediation. It's a solution of making a determination who's got the quote-unquote law on their side here. And, and many times a judge 
will pronounce a sentence or an order or a judgment on something and go, I don't even want to do this, but my hands are tied because this is the letter of the law. And, and that is how corporatocracies function, plutocracies function, democracies function, where a republic requires mediation amongst its own citizens for it to flourish. And we're going to have to do a lot of mediation within our communities in the future as things become more scarce and hard to come by. And I would rather have a person with a real fundamental understanding of permaculture as an ambassador than what we currently think of as an ambassador. Because that person's mind is tuned toward the solution rather than the objective. Ambassadors generally think of objectives. I'm going to go in here and I'm going to make sure my side gets what's coming to it. right? Where a good ambassador should be saying, how do we set this up so that the concerns of all parties are met and dealt with as equitably as possible? And we do the least to infringe on what anybody's looking for. And our primary goal is to make sure that everybody is able to exist as they choose so long as they don't infringe on others. That's a permaculture ethic, guys. It really is. So those of you that have, have struggled with the, the permaculture level of content on this show, if you're really concerned with your futures, economic and otherwise, I, I really encourage you to learn more. Start with Jeff's videos. Uh, start with all the information that's available for free. Keep tuning in when you see a show about permaculture. And I'll keep doing everything I can to help you guys build more stability and true intrinsic wealth into your lives. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution 